Gonzo is unavailable, owing to a pressing romantic assignation with someone, or actually someones. Elizabeth Soames is my second call, and it transpires she is at home in Crickerwood Cove. I visit. I explain. Elizabeth wears the particular lack of expression I associate with rolling eyes and obvious answers, and then asks me which of my tutors at Jarndyce best understands the real world. I ponder briefly. Many Jarndyce professors have worked in business and the law, science and the arts. None of them, really, gives the impression that they are worldly, save one. I say his name. Elizabeth nods. I cannot shake the feeling that she was waiting for me to catch up. I ask about her. She says she's now studying to be a reporter. She has the urge to travel. There are things she wishes to know. Her expression tells me that is as much information as I will get at this time. And so we walk, and I make her laugh, just once. Before I leave, she kisses me lightly on the cheek. It's a chaste thing. Of deep affection, I embrace her, and it occurs to me how slight she is, and how slender by comparison with my arms and chest. I am aware of these things because my arms encircle her completely, and while my left palm is pressed to her back to draw her close, my right hand touches my own shoulder. We draw apart, and she kisses me again on the other cheek. There is just a trace of moisture on her lips. And they are very soft. The kiss lingers and tingles on me, but before I can look at her, examine her, she has turned and slipped away, and my train is coming. Bloody mess! Says Doctor Fortesmere. He is not talking about my situation, but about his grouse, which has this minute arrived in the hand of a pretty Californian exchange student named Callista. Whom Fortesmere has appointed his personal butler this year in a gesture towards equal rights for women. Rebuke the kitchen, would you please? Callista favours him with a smouldering look, extremely fetching in her butler's uniform, and departs. The grouse looks much like any other—a sort of shocked pigeon with stunted wings. But I gather that Fortesmere's keener eye has spotted some deficiency. Potatoes. He says morosely, "All over the place, and covered in muck. I loathe gravy. Always taste of horse meat. Never had horse? No. Not bad, actually. Bit horsey. Whiff of the stables always." He glares at the grouse, then pokes it dejectedly with a fork. It gives a wet little noise of crisp skin being rustled by a big gentleman, and somehow looks rather sad. Fortesmere is touched and takes pity on it, and conversation is precluded for a while because Doctor Fortesmere's manner of eating, while scrupulously correct, is not quiet. You've got a problem, Fortesmere murmurs finally, and I realise that he has actually been thinking about this while he demolished the unhappy grouse. My heart lifts a little. Silly problem, Fortesmere murmurs. Frightful girl. What was her name? Bloody Eva Braun waiting for Adolf. Not fair of me, of course. No destiny. Still dobbed you in. Never liked her. Aline. Where is she now? Transferred. Buggered off. Say goodbye. No, I respond, realizing for the first time that this is so. Fortesmere nods. 
took that idiot Sebastian Sands with her, of course. Small mercies, gifted student, frightful pain in the arse. Rather liked him. Always wished him on another university. Lo and behold, time for a bit of pudding, I think. He rings the bell. Callista stalks back into the room with a vast bowl of rhubarb crumbles steeped in cream. She has provided a second spoon, much smaller, for me. It is either a desperate attempt to prevent Fortismere from rupturing, or a backhanded comment on my relationship with him. She heaves a sigh in his direction as she puts the dish down and delivers a full wattage pout. In Fortismere's place, I'd be having trouble sitting, but he seems not to notice. Callista straightens sharply and marches out. Rhubarb's a thing, you know. Increases circulation, stimulates the sexual juices. Never know why they don't investigate it. Probably worth millions. Your friend must live on it. What's his name? Lubitsch. Eastern European blood, of course. Goes at it like a weasel. Lubitsch, not Callista. She's furious with him, you know. Stood her up, throwing herself at me by way of revenge. Silly girl. Couldn't be less interested. Too thin. Probably kill her if we got down to it. Snap her like a twig. She'd have to go on top. Hate that. Always makes me feel like a whale being refloated. Need a woman of stature, eh? Fortismere draws an outline in the air of a woman constructed along the lines of a double base. It is not a topic I wish to pursue, and so I remain strategically silent. Go and see Hor. Knows things. Uncanny little sod. Too clever by half, and I'm so clever it's painful. His eyes glitter from his lax face, a fox in a thicket. What will you tell him? The truth. Fortismere thinks about that. Yes, he says at last. Probably the best thing. Bloody deceptive honesty. Callista brings cheese. And so I find myself approaching the place of work of Mister Crispin Hoare of the Office of Procurement, which unfortunate combination of names has already caused me to snuffle briefly on the telephone, but about which I was informed in breathless confidence by the temporary receptionist, Mister Hoare has exactly no sense of humour at all. Mister Hoare indeed does not appear to get a lot of laughs out of anything. The building in which he works is a grey slab with stern windows and poorly chosen organic paint colours, which are intended to produce a stable and relaxing work environment, as per Directive EV/9, but in fact cause the entire complex to resemble the messy interior plumbing of a sickly bison. The strip lighting, low energy as per Directive EV/6, is responsible for much of this. Because it emits in the green and purple areas of the spectrum, which are not tints favourable to a feeling of general good health. Further, this illumination is produced by ultra-high frequency discharges of an electric current through a tube of fluorescing gas, meaning that they flicker at a given enormously rapid rate. This frequency being one which sadly produces tension, annoyance, and migraines in 81% of adult humans. And has the interesting side effect of causing tachycardia in shrews, shrews being very susceptible to stress and having, in any case, ill-designed cardiovascular systems. 
it is safe to assume that any shrew entering Mr. Hoare's workplace with the intention of asking him for a job would be dead before it had gone five meters down the long corridor I am currently attempting, and would thereby instantly convert itself into organic waste and be disposed of by the sanitation crew. Should the shrew turn out to contain elevated or even toxic levels of chemical waste, or should there be cause to suspect, by reason of signs of aberrant and unshrew-like behavior or outward symptoms of transmissible diseases such as, but not limited to, rashes, bleeding, elevated temperature and coughing, evidence of pre-mortem deliquescence or petechial hemorrhaging, that the aforementioned shrew was in fact the carrier of a biological agent, the business of disposal would be handed over to a hazmat team trained in these matters, and the tiny body would be removed in a suitable container by men and women wearing spacesuits and taken to a place of investigation to ascertain the level of the threat and also to tease from the tiny terrified corpse any forensic evidence suggesting that it might be involved in anti-statist activities, that it might, in fact, be a suicide shrew. Since no shrew would in the normal course of events come anywhere near the office of procurement, the mere presence of the animal would have to be assumed evidence of abnormal activity, and a stray, confused and moribund rodent of this kind could reasonably be expected to close an entire government building for several hours and cost the taxpayer a cool quarter mill, all of which goes through my mind as I trudge to Mr. Hoare's office in search of some way to earn money in what has turned out to be a hostile world. The door is closed, of course, because men like Mr. Hoare do not emphasize their availability. In my dreams, I have seen this door as grand and wooden, watched it swing open before I can knock. In these visions, the door itself was heavy, reinforced with strange materials spun off from space explorations and deep-sea diving, so as to withstand bullets, bombs, and manual force for long enough to afford the priceless expertise contained in the person of Crispin Hoare, ample time to summon assistance in the face of such outrageous assaults, or to take cover in the complex of tunnels spreading out from behind his study, or even to arm himself and personally repel the invasion by use of advanced weaponry and superior skill. The door I am now approaching is mysteriously ignorant of this impressive ancestry and seems determined to be made of a nasty prefab moulded stuff and to have a grubby window in it and C.T. Hoare, I.C., proked, stenciled or even transferred onto it in tatty gold leaf. I raise my hand, expecting to be preempted, and am not, which means that my first knock is rather muffled and ham-fisted and I am forced to repeat the effort before a loud voice says, Come! And I struggle with the handle for a moment because my fingers are suddenly slippery and it is one of those round ones which are a bit stiff. Use a hanky, cries the voice within. Since there is a box of them resting on a school chair next to the door, I do. The door, light and definitely not reinforced, opens onto a chamber the size of a concession stand. Mr. Hoare is by any measure a tiny, rat-like bloke with ears like solar panels on a pink nervous satellite, and he has been orbiting here for a while in the summer heat because 
His unique odor permeates the room. He smells of linen and mint and of damp male civil servant, but is not, thank God, one of those men who produces a rich, salty mustard gas from their armpits, and so the effect is surprising, but not revolting. He gestures me to a chair and leans forward curiously, and I have to shake my head slightly to dislodge the shrew comparison, lest I say something foolish and, more crucially, unemployable. He asks what he can do for me, and I tell him that I would like a job, which appears to surprise him. But my dear boy, says C. T. Hoare, surely not with us. Yes, it has been my life's ambition. Do you know what we do here? This is something of a poser. It is either so obvious that it needs no explanation, or so secret that it may not be mentioned, because nowhere in the many pages of literature I have scrutinized in order to isolate the name of Crispin Hoare and obtain his coordinates have I been able to ascertain the precise function of his office. Looked at intelligently, I say, looking at Crispin Hoare intelligently, this is the most important branch of the civil service. Oh yes, undoubtedly, says Crispin Hoare, very pleased. But what drew your attention to us? Not a lot of people, he says sadly, are even aware we exist. Necessary, of course, but sad. I have no idea what ought to have drawn my attention. And no desire to lay claim to having had my attention drawn by routes either improper or unfeasible, so I agree with the necessity and dodge the question, and so it goes on. And with every one of my evasions, Crispin Hoare seems to get a little more tired and sad, and each of my non-responses is a springboard into another question I cannot answer. And finally, he holds up his hand for a halt, and I know absolutely clearly. That I have been busted wide open like a cantaloupe, and the only thing left is whether he takes pity on me, or throws me out on my lying, untouchable ass. Crispin Hall looks at me across the desk and takes stock. He lets out a long, slow sigh. Forgive me, he says. I think the reason you came to me is that you have no other choice. You are here, Crispin Hall says. Because someone has given you nowhere else to go, he nods to himself, and I realize that his satellite head is not one of those ones which beams long-distance phone calls from Estonia to Kashmir. It is one of the ones which can photograph your hair follicles and read your mail from up there. C. T. Hoare is not someone you can kid with some unrehearsed blather and a gonzo grin. There is an annex attached to your record. I would imagine, C. T. Hoare says over his cluttered, amiable desk, that not one of the other people you went to for employment even talked to you about the job. He gazes at me steadily with sympathy. I would imagine that they talked about everything but the job, and despite some splendid prevarication, I would venture that you have no notion of what I do. Very good effort, though. At which point I nearly burst into tears, but manage instead a manly nod, which is intended to convey that none of this is now or has ever been my fault, and yet I carry the cross without complaint or expectation of redress. 
Crispin Hoare opens a manila folder and studies the single page contained therein. It takes him not very long at all. He reads it again, just to make sure. He shrugs. <laughs>